Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Terry murdered a child. The evidence and the counter evidence. I'm struggling with that. When the facts are filled with coincidences, don't dismiss those coincidences. I have no tolerance for the unexplainable. Well then, sir, you'll have no tolerance for me. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching The Outsider. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Blossom. This week we are discussing episode six, the one about the Yiddish vampire, written by Jesse Nixon Lopez and directed by Karen Kusama. Mm-hmm. A big episode. She destroyed this. Oh, hi <laughs> Um, if you have never listened to an episode of Still Watching, if this is your first time, uh, what we do every week is we break down the latest episode of some show that we are fascinated with, that we are watching. Right now, we are watching the HBO series The Outsider. Richard and I will not spoil anything that happens in the future, and that is especially true this week because we have not seen beyond this episode. Episode 6 mm-hmm. is the last episode that HBO sent to press, so we can't even accidentally allude to something coming up because we have not seen it, so... There you go. You're in the clear. Um, before we get into this episode, which, you know, for the first time links up uh, all of our cast members, core cast members in, in one room, um, we have a bunch of emails from you guys. We're getting so many uh, Big Daddy Hangry Barbecue uh, themed emails. No, just emails in general from you guys from the show. And it's great. Um, <clears throat> if you want to email us your thoughts, your theories, you can try stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. That is where you will find us. Um, this one comes from Bethany and Bethany says, I wanted to point out one thing that I appreciate so much in this last episode. She's talking about episode five, which we discussed last week, which is uh, Jeannie's work. <clears throat> I'm a social worker with a different population. And as a social worker and movie person, I'm always sad that the only social worker I ever see in movies or TV are terrible ones who mess with the characters lives in some way. Jeannie, at least so far, seems like a great social worker with things I recognize from practice. There's a lot that is clearly cut down for cinematic purposes, but that empathy and kindness is absolutely a key part of the best social workers I know. It's great to see some positive representation. 
so that's from Bethany. And I think that's really important for what we see Jeannie do this week. That empathy and that, like, l- that listening, that careful listening and that, uh, I think willingness not to discount people on first impressions, uh, is so integral to Jeannie's involvement in episode six. What do you think of that marriage of career and sort of personality in this character, Richard? Well, what I kind of find, I mean, you know, we've talked about it before on the show that like this, there needs to be at least some leavening agent in this because otherwise it would just be this like constant descent into gloom. And I think that like true, this is true of it as well, which I feel like has a similar kind of vibes is that like, um, both being, you know, Stephen King things, um, is that what we see, especially in this episode, is the sense that it's a community forming to fight this thing, which is sort of, I think, a, me- a metaphor for how we deal with trauma in our lives, if we're lucky, if we have people that we can kind of gather around us. Um, and, and, and it's a kind of a metaphor for just how people, how civilizations exist in their best form, which is like people helping each other. Um, and I think that she's a big part of that because she's not deputized. She's not part of law enforcement, but she has a skill set that is really, really valuable for this. Um, kind of, you know, sort of peering into the unknown involves talking to people about improbable things and, you know, not necessarily 100% believing them every time, but, but listening to them. And, you know, I think that in this kind of the big, one of the big scenes of this episode where you have, maybe it's a little bit, the, the, the dramatic conventions or you can sort of see the seams of that, that like, why is that, why did they decide to do this all in one room? But you do see where you have, you know, Terry Maitland's lawyer there and the, the detective's wife and like everyone and this private investigator all coming together, um, to sort of slowly figure this out. And uh, yeah, I think Jeannie is a huge, uh, huge part of that. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying, especially, you know, you start with this core group of investigators and then, uh, Jeannie being like, why don't, why don't we invite everyone who's been touched by this into this room? And then, yeah, you really do get a sense of like the whole community in, in that room, even though obviously there's a lot, uh, a lot more in that town. But, um, I like, I like that idea of a community banding together. And I think that is a very king thing. We get, <clears throat> this is perhaps the most king episode yet. And we'll get to that. Um, but I, what I like is that it really feels like Richard Price didn't just take a King story and say, okay, let me put it, you know, squeeze it through the strainer. And on the other side, there's a Richard Price show because there is a lot of Price uh, friendly themes in this story. But, you know, it's very clear that Richard Price also, especially in this episode, really wanted to do a Stephen King story as well. So that idea of a community and how a whole community, how a whole town is impacted. Um, is interesting. All right. We've got two emails about, um, the Derek vision that happens at the end of the last week's episode, um, that I don't think is, are, are rendered, um, you know, um, they, they still matter despite sort of the developments of this episode. So this first one's from, um, Levi or Levy who says an idea about Derek's appearance in Ralph's dream. Could the dream be a protective gesture slash slash message from his son? Ralph grieves his son. The grief eater feeds on grief. Does that make him more vulnerable to the grief eater's predation while the pain is so profound and at the forefront of his consciousness? What do you think? Um, and then I'm going to follow that really quickly with Michelle's email about the Derek vision. Um, she says, uh, I'm still undecided on what it was, an actual vision of him or Ralph projecting it, but I saw it as a protection. The times the hoodie person has made contact that we know of have been times of grief and emotional turmoil for people. 
Terry's smallest kid after he dies, Jeannie after she's been shook up by his presence in the office. I think Derek saying he needs to let him go is Ralph's brain on some level understanding what is happening and knowing his grief is the power hood he has over him or Derek protecting Ralph, depending on how supernatural you want to get. Either way, I think the less mired in grief he is, the less susceptible to hoodie hurting him he is. I'm also curious what you guys think about Claude being the next scratch person, scratch person when it seems to have been very careful to not commit murders in the same town. Is Claude due for a trip soon? Is there just so much grief to feed off in this town? Is one of Terry's children next since Gloria is sort of participating in this investigation? So <clears throat> this episode obviously opens up the question of, um, of the Derek visitation in, in, I think this is a tremendously good episode. And I think the high point for me is Ralph having to reckon with this Derek dream slash visitation slash whatever it is that when he and Holly are in the kitchen at the end of the episode, I rewound it like three times to watch Ben Mendelsohn's performance. Um, so what do you, what do you make of what we learned about Derek in this episode and sort of what these, the questions these folks are asking about that Derek moment in episode five? Well, I don't know what explicitly the answer is in terms of intertextually textually with the show. Mm-hmm. Like okay. I, I think, uh, intratextually, um, I, I think that, um, you know, maybe that, that this, this entity does operate so sinisterly that it can sometimes take the form of a loved one, uh, or implant a dream in your head. Um, and, and that seems at first to be a warm thing, a sort of a happy revisiting, but it actually has, you know, um, bad motives behind it. But I think, you know, sort of more on the interpretive side of things, I think that what that could, regardless of what the answer is, is that like, you know, a hard thing for people who are in the sort of longer term of grief, not not the immediate horror, you know, shock and, and everything, um, but are just sort of living with the day to day, which we talked about last week, where we see the kind of quotidian details of Ralph and Jeannie's life, right. um, is that like, it's a, it's a, it's an unanswerable question, ultimately, what is what does letting someone go really mean, you know, and I think a lot of people fear, well, like, am I going to forget what they looked like? Am I going to forget what they sounded like? Am I going to forget forget certain memories with them? I don't want to do that. But right. I, I also know that I have to keep moving. And so, the kind of um, could be either or sort of nature of, of that visitation, uh, I think really speaks to that. It's like, you know, you never do know, like, is it a good thing to move on? Is it best to, you know, kind of stick to it and, 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 and honor them with your kind of mourning, you know? Um, I think it's a struggle that everyone who's lost someone, you know, profoundly um, uh, deals with. And I think that's kind of what the, the ultimate thematic aim of this, this kind of thing is, um, well, again, I don't know narratively what, what that is, what the answer is going to be, if there even is one. Right. I almost prefer if we don't know an answer because it, yeah. has, it just has so much to do with Ralph and his faith, um, and his process and what's going on with him. And like the fact that we see him, you know, this thing happens to him in episode five. He doesn't tell Jeannie about it. We find out we see him in this episode going to therapy and being like, this is a breakthrough. This is good. I'm making progress like this, whatever this was like this dream, this, whatever this was, this was good for me. I feel happy about it. And then Holly comes in and introduces this idea of like projection and all of a sudden Ralph is unsure. And then when she confronts him directly about it, then she's right about everything else. Right. She confronts him directly about it. And he's so defensive um, and so like the, the shades of Ben Mendelsohn's performance here, um, because there's this whole, like, there's one, like, <clears throat> there's one thin layer on top. That's this sort of smirky, like he's, he's polite to her 
and he's mm-hmm. n- nice to her and he lets her in his home even after he says those bad things when she's like literally sitting in the backseat of his car. But like he's polite to her, but he's got this kind of like smirky. He literally, he literally says like, sorry, it's not, it hasn't happened to me. I, ha- I haven't been visited by anything. And she's like, you sure, buddy? A dream? Something? Anything? And then he's like, oh, my ghost son. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he's just like, yeah, but it wasn't him. He's just like shrugging it off. It's like, it wasn't him. Um, but the, de- the doubt and the denial and, and the part where he like goes into the bedroom earlier in the episode and was just like, was it really you? I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Um, and it's so, good and and like knowing that this is something that the show has added that that Derek's you know that Ralph has not lost a son in the book and this is something that the show decided to do I think it's such an interesting and important choice um for you know just the the fruit is bearing um is never ending as far as I'm concerned well, yeah, because I think that if it was the other way around, again, I haven't read the book, and I'm sure that he gets at interesting things, you know, without the the, the dead son in the, in the kind of lead detective's uh, own life. I think that, like, the grief would seem maybe a little bit too remote, too much of an object, right. if it was just other people's, if it was just Glory's, if it would, you know, like, like, uh, granted, you know, this show is careful to, to move everyone to the center for their own little moment, you know, in each episode or a couple episodes, but I think that we need that thing at the very center of the show. Um, that, that drives the protagonist's kind of relationship with the case, um, because it makes it that much more immediate. Um, and I think that, um, you know, it also opens just a lot more doors in terms of what it can, um, explore thematically. Excellent. All right. And so this last email, um, comes from, actually, I want to do two, one really quickly, which is, um, this, uh, listener, I'm going to go with P. Fortunato is, is the name I'm going to say because they're very kindly let me get away with the first initial. Um, okay. So, uh, great show. This person writes in, but why is Terry Maitland's family still alive? We've watched as the families of the other victims have been torn apart after the initial tragedy. The fact that they seem to be holding together is bumping me a bit. I like stories with horror slash supernatural elements best that are grounded in reality. Whatever the show strays from that, I get worried. Plus, in stories like this, the internal logic of the fantastic has to be extremely consistent. I really like the show, so I hope it follows. It lives up to its initial promise. Also, also on the strength of the first two episodes, I wish Jason Bateman could have directed them all. Well, I don't know if if uh, if this person's uh, opinion will have changed because I think Karen Kusama's uh, direction of this episode was excellent. But um, <clears throat> the question about Terry's family, my answer to this would be Ralph's whole thing. Like every time Jeannie's like, you need to stop or whenever Jeannie's like a bad thing is going to happen. He's like, a bad thing is already happened. Right. That's what he said last week. My job, Ralph says is to try to stop the next bad thing from happening. That's mm-hmm. why we're doing all of this. And so I see his investigation and his involvement, his deep involvement in, in Glory's uh, life as much as she's letting him um, as, you know, the best protection that that family has. Because we see Glory, uh, you know, on the knife's edge in this episode. And I could easily see a situation where that family also, like, falls apart, uh, or, you know, like in a, in a, um, 
in a deadly way, the way the other families have. And, and so like, it feels to me like Jeannie and Ralph as, as these forces for good, which is something that Stephen King likes a lot, these sort of like protector figures in a community. So like Ralph and Jeannie, both of them, the social worker and the cop or whatever, as, as these protector figures for this family, protecting these, this, this woman and her two girls, um, against this monster. Um, that's sort of my interpretation of what's going on there. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, Holly lays it out in this episode pretty, you know, just literally, she's just like, we, the only way to do this is to contain it, stop it here, break the chain, you know, whatever. And she talks about how this thing is vulnerable and knows it is. Um, and so takes certain precautions to protect itself. And if something is vulnerable and needs protecting, that means it can be stopped. It can be broken. I don't think that, you know, I, I, I don't know what the origin of this entity is, but maybe it's, you know, ageless, eternal, whatever, or maybe it's not. Maybe it has its own sort of mortality. And so, yeah, eventually something is going to get in its way. And I think that that's what we're seeing here. You know, I think sometimes you wonder like, well, why is it happening now? Why isn't it following the same pattern? And it's like, well, it's not because it's the story that they're, it, that we're watching, you know, right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like you could make the series all about the, you know, Hofstetter or whatever, and then it would just end horribly and that would be it. But like, you kind of want the thing, you know, just sort of from a sort of, you know, viewer perspective that like is about the up, upsetting of that pattern. Right. The you breaking know? of the cycle. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. So I think that's what we're getting. Although I do not think by any means, especially given the scene at the di- the dining room or the, the kitchen table where, where Gloria's like, did he, maybe he did it. And then she says it out loud for the first time. Um, I'm like, I don't think that her grief process is by any means done. No. You know, not- and I also think you have, you have a catatonic daughter. So not catatonic, but like, you know, she said she's retreated to her own planet or whatever. Yeah. That's its own kind of loss. So yeah. there's, you know, there's plenty of grief right there. I I completely agree. And I think, uh, you know, as, as much as I admire Ben Mendelsohn's performance in this episode, and I do, Julianne Nicholson's delivery, uh, like, you know, she's like, what if he killed the boy? And then her, like, gasp mm-hmm. and pause. Like, sometimes, I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes when I'm watching a show, I like to think of the actor getting, like, it, what if I'm an actor? I'm, I'm, I'm not, unless you count high school, which you shouldn't. But, like, um, you get the words on the page. And then, you know, obviously the magic of acting is like interpreting those in like a very dynamic or, you know, believable way, stuff like that. But Julianne Nicholson, like, in theory, I mean, maybe it was on the page, but looks at this, you know, what if he killed the, <laughs> what if he killed the boy? And she's like, I'm going to, I'm going to gasp and I'm going to like do all this stuff. And she does it and it's not over the top. It's really good. And, um, anyway, she's an A plus actress and this was a really, really good episode for her. So we've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration. A kitchen with no space. A toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. 
you can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, and I'm really, and it gives me hope because as we've mentioned, I really love, uh, Patty Constantine, the play, the actor who plays Claude and we haven't seen him do much, but like, I was worried that Julian Nicholson wasn't going to get to do much and she's included in so much of this season. She's an actress I really, really like. And, um, so I'm, I'm optimistic that we are, you know, we're going to get even more and even more and even more of Claude, um, so that we can see that tremendous actor do, uh, his, his work. So. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's go through the episode and thank you guys all for your emails. Still watching pot at gmail.com. If you have more thoughts about what we find out in this episode, um, I'm just going to start with, um, with Andy, um, because Holly calls Andy and there's just like a, you know, Andy's, Andy's basically on the case for Holly, whatever she needs, he's going to figure it, find it out for her. And he's just constantly like, I like you so much. And she very politely is like, thank you, Andy. Um, so on a scale of one to 10, how worried are we about Andy this week, Richard? Still worried, though glad that she's getting further from him. Yes. You know, <laughs> like she's moved past, like she's almost kind of reached the limit of what she needs to know about those past cases, you know? Um, so hopefully that distance that she's put between them means he's safe, but you never know. Yes. Uh, who knows how far El Cuco can like project himself or whatever, but, um, yeah, or so, herself or her oh, oneself them <laughs> them let's say they probably them they um all right so uh holly's journey uh to where she needs to go is like constantly interrupted we see it we saw it interrupted last week we see it interrupted this week she's got this like First of all, her Wi-Fi goes out, and I'm like, oh, did El Cuco knock out the Wi-Fi? Um, we don't know. Sometimes there are just places in California or in the United States that don't have Wi-Fi, but every time the Wi-Fi goes out in the future now, I'm just going to be like, is it El Cuco? Is he here? Um, but the, the the Wi-Fi goes out. She falls asleep on the bus. She has this vision that the bus is going to like crash. She sees Tracy Powell. She has this vision the bus is going to crash. Um, and so what do you – do you have any thoughts around the way in which this bus driver – reacts to her in this scenario i mean i think i don't know i was thinking about it there are a couple of weird things in that bus scene one of the one of the scenes on the bus opens with a close-up on a man's face and i don't think we know who that man is or if he's supposed to be anybody did you notice that i thought it was the bus driver but he's it's but he's sitting in the back i thought i don't oh. know or i thought he was like kind of he was kind of resting um, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm totally wrong, but like, I don't know. I was thinking like, you know, we're, you know, in, a, in, in currently clenched in one drug epidemic, not long after another, which came not long after another from crack to meth to opioids, you know, like maybe he's just sick of seeing people high on his bus, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Like to me, it reminded me of, um, the things you, when you were talking about how, um, like Cynthia Revo as, you know, as a black actress doesn't look like a lot of the other, mm-hmm. uh, investigators on this show. Uh, and so like, I don't know. I was like the, the immediate leap to, are you high on my bus 
felt racially charged to me. Oh um, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that's, you know, that has to textually be there. Um, you know, at, at all times, you know, I don't, you know, she can't, I don't, I don't think that that doesn't ever turn off, right, you know? Exactly. Um, um, but yeah, so, you know, she finally gets to town and, uh, <laughs> you know, okay. So it, it was, it was Jeannie's idea that Jack be invited to the meeting after Jack already said he wanted to go to the meeting, but Jeannie's like, let's invite everyone. Glory, uh, you know, Jack, blah, blah. Um, and then, so Jack calls Ralph and he's like, Hey bud, really want to be part of your team. Want to be in that meeting. What's a fun job you have for me? And he's like, go pick Holly up the bus station. And I'm like, that's a big job. Like mm-hmm. why? I mean, I know, I know why for the plot, Jack is picking Holly up from the station, but I'm like, Ralph, why are you sending Jack who is, whose people skills are in the toilet to go pick up Holly, uh, from the train, from the bus. Whose station. people skills are yeah. slightly less out of the toilet, <laughs> but like, still in the toilet sink. adjacent. Yeah, yeah. They're in the sink. Yeah. So I was just like, that's just, that's, that's not the, the job I would have given Jack myself. Um, but yeah, so they have, so, and then like, you know, but those of us watching at home are just like kind of terrified for Holly this entire time that she's alone with Jack or, you know, at least I was, um, so what do you make of these Jack Holly uh, interactions that precede the the meeting? Well, it's interesting that um El Cuco or whatever it is is um having him pry for information. Yeah. Cuz it's like, oh, so you're not like all seeing, all knowing. Mm-hmm. Like there are things you don't know. You don't know how close they are to you, you know, right. like how how hot behind your heels they are, you know, like uh, like hot on your heels. Like I I I think that I think, again, I've said it like week after week. I think it's really interesting and kind of crucial to the creepiness of this that this thing is scared, that it knows it's being pursued, that it doesn't want to be caught, that it wants to keep living, you know, yeah. um, and existing kind of unbothered. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of like, I, I like the way that this, cause I, I find that when it's, you know, band of scrappy people goes up against all powerful, implacable enemy. It's like a little dull because you're like, well, there's going to be some Deus Ex Machina or some flaw in the Death Star that they then, you know, <laughs> can exploit. Whereas this, it's like maybe there are many flaws. Like maybe this thing has just worked unimpeded for so long because people haven't bothered to look, you know, because it was a Latina bartender in New York, right. um, you know, because it was an alien, you know, a young black man in Ohio, you know, I think that maybe there is a commentary on that, like that the thing it took to get people to pay attention was an upstanding straight white guy who coached Little League. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Holly sort of underlined uh, your thesis when, you know, she says uh, he wouldn't be threatened if he wasn't vulnerable. Right. She says that about El Cuco. So, uh, or I don't know. Uh, do we want to call him El Cuco? What do we want to call him? Should we call him uh, El, El Cuco, which is what, what Glory calls him? Uh, oh, that was good. Yeah. Was, let's just, uh, <laughs> um, the boogeyman, whatever we want to call him. Let's for, for no, for no charge reason, let's just call him Donald. Okay. Donald's, uh, totally, totally without any, um, just reference to pulled any. that name out of the ether. Donald, yeah. you might know. Um, so, so we have Jack and like the thing that's going on with Jack right now is he wakes up in this episode, his rash, uh, disgusting rash on the back of his neck is better because he's doing what is asked of him. He's not fighting anymore. He's, he's spying for the opposition. So the rat, you know, he says, thank you. My rash is better. Like because of that. Right. Um, mm-hmm. meanwhile, over at, uh, Ralph and Jeannie's, uh, <laughs> 
Ralph has pulled out the other drawing um, of uh, Donald, uh, whatever we want to call him. Uh, and Jeannie's like, I'm sorry, you had this the whole time? And you uh-huh. were trying to make me feel uh, bananas for my drawing? Uh, friend, these are obviously mirror images of the same thing. Uh, and so she gets it into her head that she should, uh, go and, and talk to, uh, Glory's daughters. And, um, this is, this is a really interesting move on her part. Um, it's obviously something Jeannie would not do. Like, you know, she brings over her son's toys to like butter them up. It's obviously something Jeannie would not do if she didn't feel like it was extremely necessary for this investigation. It is still uh, a really big, uh, risky swing that she makes here, uh, going over and asking um, the youngest daughter to sort of describe the man she saw in her vision. But she winds up with a pretty impressive little spectrum at the end of it. So um, Yeah, and it's a bit of a repeat from when she goes and talks to her about the things she saw in her bedroom, you know? Yeah. And she's, you know, but that's okay. And I and I sort of found myself wondering, like, well, Jeannie clearly got angry the first time this happened, so why is she letting it happen again? And I think, again, because these are all people caught in cycles of grief who are trying to find a way out of it. Right. And so, you know, they just, maybe they just keep knocking on the same door. And for, for Glory, it's like, well, maybe this time something, some, there's going to be some break, you know? Maybe this time she'll say something that they'll be like, Oh, it's George from down the street. That's who did it. You know, right. like, um, I, I think that like, uh, again, a randomly picked name. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I just, you know, I, 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 I so I, I like, I, I, I guess I, I think this for me, this will have to be the last episode that Ralph is not on board with this because if they go another week or another hour of television of him being like, no, I don't think so. These things aren't related. Like then I'd get frustrated because this is like, you see those things on the wall and you're like, okay, clearly (laughs) this is what's happened, you know? Um, so I'm glad that we finally got there. Yeah. You've got the, the spectrum of, of drawings in the wall. And then you also have like, you know, Holly doing CSI iPhone, um, in their dining room. So, um, before we, before we get there though, I, I need to ask your opinion, um, on a sentence. Mm. Um, it is a quote from this episode and it goes like this. Daddies are for weekends. What, uh, what do you make of that sentence, Richard? Well, in my world. Yes. <laughs> That's like when you go to the Pines and Fire Island for the weekend uh-huh. to see your older friend. Um, no, I mean, it's sad. I mean, and I think it's a common sort of thing for so many heterosexual families where, you know, just because of gender roles, like dad gets the fun time, you know, cause he's working otherwise or whatever the, the sort of arrangement is. Um, it's a mournful little line. And then it's sort of, it's, it's, it's further punctuated by glory saying, you know, she hasn't called him daddy for so long. She thought it was baby stuff and now she's right back to it. You know, and I don't know. It's just like, it, it, it's, it, a show like this, you know, I think it's really impressive that it doesn't beat you over the head with a lot of like very perf, like kind of almost generic grief, like kids, like, you know, doing sort of cliched acting out things because they're in mourning or whatever. Um, but instead it just shows it to you in, in like subtle, much more credible ways. And I think, you know, that little, that little sentence like opens the door of like, okay, a little, a little more understanding of what this marriage was. Yeah. I think it's a perfect, uh, little window, um, little, little bit of sadness. Um, and also an ideal, uh, 
Tinder bio. So if somebody wants to put that on their Tinder, I applaud you. Um, all right. Twinks are for the weekdays and daddies <laughs> are for weekends. Or grinder. I suppose it should be a grinder profile. Or okay. scruff. Um, scruff. You never know. <laughs> um, one thing that, another thing that the, the whole Jack and Holly inca- pre-meeting encounter brought us to other things. Number one, we get to hear Holly's repeated uncertainty of like, I don't think anyone's going to believe. I don't want to, I don't even want to tell you what I'm going to say in this meeting. Cause like Ralph, who I like, I don't think is going to believe you. You who I don't have a good, don't like, uh, right off the bat here, friend. I don't want to tell you. I'm nervous. Like Holly's, Holly not charging and being like, of course I'm right. Of course it's the boogeyman. But her being like, I know what this is going to sound like uh, already. Right. I know what it's going to sound like. And that I, was important for us to hear, I think. And I know that she, like, in the in the King universe, like, has been in other books and maybe has encountered other things. But, like, I don't know if Mr. Mercedes is supernatural or not. But, like, um, but I, I, I wonder, like, if, if, if that anxiety is born of the fact that this is the furthest out on a limb she's ever gone. You know, yeah. like, yeah. I wonder how, how has she been brought to these same conclusions in different cases where she's like, it's something unexplainable or otherworldly. I don't know. But I, I like the sort of thing of like, no, no, I really think this is happening. But I, I realize also that it's a really hard pill to swallow. Yeah, I think that um, probably the Mr. Mercedes uh, like story that she has encountered is very, very spooky, supernatural. But uh, Richard Price has said that they're sort of like pretending that the Mr. Mercedes stuff doesn't right. exist in their world. And so I think that that's a good enough, uh, read on this Holly, that this is the farther, furthest that this version of Holly has gone out on a limb, uh, for her, you know, you know, supernatural conclusions, I suppose. Um, and I think also the yeah. fact that she's alluded to her terrible childhood, you know, yeah. um, where, and then now has become this very fact-based, pragmatic person, um, and, and, and puts those skills to great use. The kind of hearkening back to a childhood superstition, a childhood fear and being like, well, actually, no, sometimes there are bogeymen lurking in the shadows. Sometimes this thing isn't explainable by sort of human emotion or whatever, or perception or anything like that. And I think that's, that's kind of mirrored in the scene, um, between, um, uh, what's I, I forget their character names, but I think it's where, where one guy is saying like, you know, we think so many people are demons, but what if we think, right. you know, like, or, you right. know, like what, what if, what if once in a while there actually is one, you know? And I think that coming to terms with that in this contained world is sort of to say, not to discount all of the merits of therapy and understanding your own impulses and, and understanding the world, not being a sort of shadowy thing that's out to conspiring against you. But like, yes, maybe sometimes we can allow for the idea that like there are freak occurrences. Right. And that was a conversation between Alec and Howard Thank you. and Howard uh, does the whole Yiddish vampire. Right. Uh, that right. gives the episode his title. Thing. Um, I mean, right. hearing Bill Camp say Bubba was just fabulous. I thought, <laughs> like Chef's Kiss, beautiful. Um, and the other thing that happens in 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 this scene, I mean, uh, we get the context that Jack was recently is recently divorced, which might explain why he has that makeup that doesn't fit his skin tone in his house, perhaps. Um, but also, um, Holly says to him, "You look like you're going through some kind of hell. You look like someone's been trying to rip your heart out." And I think this is part of ja- Jack's arc in this episode is really interesting, right? Because he like starts the episode sort of like 
bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to help his dark master, right? I'm, I'm going to mm-hmm. be an A-plus student. But then he he learns about Tracy Powell, more information about Tracy Powell, um, and the fact that Tracy Powell, it seems, was not only forced to clean up the mess, but maybe fetch the Williams sisters in the first place, the victims, mm-hmm. which is more way more than Jack has been asked to do. Um, and after hearing all of that, he you know, is incredibly resistant. Like, like it's amazing what they can do with like, just the creepy, weird, like crunchy sound effect of, uh, like, you know, uh, Donald or whatever, controlling his mind or, or accessing his mind or, or punishing him physically in some way. Like it really is effective to me. And it's just sort of like, you see him learn about Tracy Powell, be like, I don't, I don't want this to be me. And that's when we get like the stop her sort of in blood being picked out on the back of his hand. Um, and then later, of course, the big encounter in, in his house. But, um, that whole arc for him is part of that arc for him is Holly having this understanding of him, like can read him immediately and is like, Oh my God, who has put you in this hell? Mm-hmm. What is happening to you? It's, it's, um, you know, which, which is good for her to know so that later she is, uh, suspicious of his offer of help, it seems. Um, all right. So then we get Holly's presentation and like we don't need to, you know, she, she zips through it pretty quickly because it's a lot of information we already know. Um, but it's really effective. Um, Ralph can't even look at her once she veers into a certain territory. Like Ben Mendelsohn like twists around in his chair. Um, uh, but, <laughs> Uh, the character of Eunice Sablo like is like El Cuco oh, no and like crosses himself and he's like mm-hmm. no thank you but all the different reactions the the spectrum of reactions here uh, is fascinating I like that Alec uh, is somewhat receptive to her uh, it's interesting that Gloria is like no let her finish and then explodes mm-hmm. uh, in a way that we I don't think we've even seen from Gloria despite the fact that she's um, you know, exploded in other circumstances. It's not ever been at this, you know, volume. And, um, and the reason why we find out later is she's like, this is the best explanation. They've put all their resources to this and the best explanation they can come up for to help exonerate my husband is the boogeyman did it. And she's so angry in that moment, but also like she's so despairing, right? She's like, yeah. holy shit, is this, is this the best option? And, and does that actually mean that he's guilty? You know, that's, that's the real source of, of her anger there, you know? Uh, yeah. So that, I mean, the presentation does not go well for Holly, uh, despite, Mm-mm. uh, all of her preparation and, and her, and her murder board there. Um, I like, I do really like that Jeannie is like, well, I mean, it helps that Jeannie has a visitation, but that Jeannie is like, listening to her uh, and wants to know more and invites her over. So um, that's all. That's all. Jeannie, Jeannie might save the day in the end by making sure that we don't write off Holly entirely, you know? Yeah. And again, to highlight Mayor Winningham's amazing performance, uh, you know, later in the episode where, where, where Holly asks for markers and she says, Oh, he has, uh, has had, you know, she catches herself yeah. on the has had, which like, that's a, that's, we've seen that in movies and TV before, but a lot of times it's like, yeah, he has no had like it's so like pu- pu- punctuated. It's so like you know highlighted. Whereas in this, it's just such a fluid little correction, and then she just continues on, you know. Um, but in that little tiny moment, there's so much contained in it, and that's just like Mayor Winningham being so good. Yeah, and to to the direction um, 
aspect. There's a sequence in this episode where we see Ralph and Jeannie sleeping and the first they're back to back and then they're facing each other. Like he's awake, she's asleep, they're back to back. And then they're facing each other. She's awake, he's asleep. And then they're like super close to each other and in a, like in a really comforting, more comforting than sexual, but maybe sexual sort of like way. And that seems to be a moment that like, maybe is not scripted and perhaps Karen Kusama's like, I want this, this specific portrait of this marriage in this episode. I don't know, but like, um, I thought it was a really beautiful, not like non verbal moment of the episode. Um, but yeah, we get, we get, uh, let's talk about Holly and, and, um, Jeannie and Ralph in the dining room and, and this trick that she does with the iPhone. Um, I know about this from TikTok, but apparently this is true. You can make like a black light, uh, with your cell phone, uh, flashlight and some markers and, uh, you know, buyer beware before you do it in your own bathroom. But, um, Yes. Yeah, I do it for all my impromptu raves that I do. That I throw. You know about those. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's oh, it's coming really. It's a life. It's like putting the phone in the bowl to amplify the sound. You know, it's just really <laughs> like a great life hack. Yeah. Um. So, uh, hopefully, when you do that, you don't find a weird residue on your table. Oh no, no, I do. I mean, that's part oh. of the rave. That's the whole thing of it. Yeah. Oh, it's like uh, this shedding. is on. Da- this is sh- this is Daddy's weekends. This is oh, only Daddy- Daddy's weekends. Daddy's yeah. weekend shedding shedding party at Daddy's mm-hmm. weekend. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to go into what shedding is, but you can look it up on uh, Urban Dictionary. <laughs> um. So yeah. So we find out that the life cycle of this thing has to do with it sloughing off its old skin, bleh, and uh, coming up with a fresh new uh, identity, uh, and the, and the way in which the face droops on one side and then the other sort of helps underline that. It helps explain Holly's like twenty something day cycle that she had written down on that piece of paper that Andy found. Um, so we found a lot of information, but we also, Holly also, we watch her come to this conclusion about uh, El Coco's ability to project itself. Um, it can't leave its little like barn or where, or factory or wherever it shelters between incidences, but it uh, can project itself. And so that would explain um why it didn't leave footprints in the carpet. Um, and it would explain a lot of the other sort of things that we've seen, uh, so far, uh, in terms of how it shows up and where, um, and that's, as we said, that puts Ralph, uh, makes Ralph doubt whether or not Derek, uh, was a vision, uh, projected by this, this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's all sort of coming, snapping into focus and you're right that it means that Ralph can't, be doubtful for so long you know it's just like it's there's so much stacking up here that for him to remain doubtful is just frustrating for us uh at home so uh, yeah and i think like we we talked about this a couple weeks ago that like more than likely this is a this is a, a a bifurcated show that the first i mean we're past the halfway mark but like the first portion of it is the lead up to the realization and then the second half is the quest to destroy the thing Right. And so I think this is the turning point of the quest. I mean, obviously we end with a cliffhanger. I don't think Holly's going to get killed by Jack in the opening of next week, but like, I mean, maybe, I don't know, but like, I doubt it. Um, you know, so, so I think clearly there will be maybe that maybe Jack's attacking her will be the, the, the confirmation that anyone needs. And then it's off to the races to, um, I guess hunt the thing down. I'm hoping that Jack attacking her, which I'm pretty sure is going to happen for a couple reasons, um, which we'll get to, uh, will be the thing that convinces Ralph, um, to take her more seriously. Or perhaps something Claude will do because we see, we see Claude, presumably, yeah, the real Claude 
behaving oddly. So like mm-hmm. that answers a question like what happens to the person that he's like that it is photocopying during it and um the answer appears to be they're uh, you know in a bad mood, have headaches. Yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but we distracted. Do we we do know he's being watched. Um, Eunice mm-hmm. is uh, has like a tail on him, basically. Uh, so Claude is under surveillance, and uh, on and which Dick suggests is- that Eunice like believes it to some extent. Yeah, which I like. Yes. I like that little scene because it's just this kind of quiet confirmation that like, no, Holly, there are people who are like, and interested who are yeah. who are who are somewhat persuaded. Um, all right, so let's get to the moment uh, that is the most uh, Stephen King-esque, as far as I'm concerned, uh, which is uh, the appearance of Jack's mom. Uh, Hello, Jackie boy. Like it's so, <laughs> it's so Stephen King, Pennywise yes. kind of stuff. Yes, it's it's perfect. It's um, she even she uses uh, I. I couple years ago or last year, maybe even, I don't know what is time, uh, watched a whole bunch of Stephen King movies in a row and read, uh, one or two books or something like that and realized that he uses the phrase Sonny Jim, uh, in everything that he writes. It's a thing. It's a little hmm. tick that he does. Uh, and so when she said Sonny Jim, I was like, ah, oh, there it is. Um, anyway, um, yeah, she's, uh, she's fantastic. She beats him up. And then later we see that, you know, she's dead. We get that. But, uh, later we see that, you know, it's really, there's nothing there. And he's, Jack's being flung around the room by, by absolutely nothing. Um, this was tremendous. It was so, so camp, so king, so creepy. Uh, I mean, I was really into it. What did, what did you think of it? Yeah. I mean, I've watched the episode a few times now and I was sort of concerned that I was the first time viewing, I was like, well, okay, this is a big leap into a different tone, you know, um, that's, you know, everything else on the show is so gloomy and solemn and not always, obviously there's actually a good deal of humor in the show, which I appreciate. And I think that's a very Richard Pricey kind of thing, gallows humor sort of stuff. Um, but no, no, the more I watched it, the, and it's, it's really creepy. I think that like, it's an interesting window into whatever the bubble neck people, like what their torment looks and feels and sounds right. like, you know? Yeah. You know, I think it's important we see both the entity's manifestation as this kind of creepy dead mother, but also we see him just being flung around the room, uh, you know, by nothing. Um, it, it just, I guess it, it, it affords a little bit of sympathy to why someone would do the bidding of this thing if that's what they're seeing. Right. You know, it's stuff yeah. like that and experiencing stuff like that. Like, obviously they're going to, you know, other than what, whatever other psychological mind meld or mind hold this thing has over them, like just to make stuff like that stop happening in your life, that would be pretty great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is, you know, and he was like, why did it have to be you? And she's like, yeah, Who yeah. Better? you know, like, yeah, it was very, you're right. Very Pennywise, but just very like, okay, here's exactly your vulnerability. Presumably he was abused by his mother, um, you know, and as a boy and yeah, just, just, uh, traumatized and then brutalized in his face. And then the, the like horror show that is his face smeared in this makeup, uh, and the way that it's shot, like him applying the makeup, which is this like crazy, like gray color, um, to his face and just, and then the way he looks with the like face wounds and the makeup on top of it when he's calling Holly to like take her out to the barn is just like a plus, a plus work, uh, really, yeah. really creepy. And- we talked about it before, but like, and obviously Jack is a drinker, but I think the whole thing where, where there's that long kind of, I guess, a tracking shot through his ruined apartment, 
and he's like, and then he's on the yeah. phone and, it, and you know, it brings to mind like after a bender, yeah. like, and then going out into the world and no one knows what your house looks like, that it's a complete mess that you've been living in this complete, like both mm. physical and emotional yeah. squalor. Like it just, I mean, so much in, in King stuff, I believe is, about, is, you know, about drinking and, and about addiction. And like the shining is all about an alcoholic man, you know, like, um, I think I, I think that's another one of those moments where the the king really kind of shines through. Absolutely, yeah. That that face you put on to to go out into the world that's a really good point. I mean, like one of the main pieces of furniture, uh, if you want to call it that, that I noticed uh, in his trash apartment is this like cool. It's a cooler that's knocked over. So mm-hmm. to, your, to your point, exactly. Um, and like, and you know, if you've uh, seeing Karen Kusama's film Destroyer, that's like a, a big part of it. Is Nicole Kidman plays a character, uh, you know, the brutality of her alcohol addiction is on her face at all time. You know what I mean? So yeah, um, that's a it's a really um, it's a really good connection there. Um, so yeah, so we get Jack uh, telling Holly he's going to take her out to the barn, and Holly has rented her own car. There's a bit of business that we see twice. With the fact that Holly has two keys for this car. She's got one that she's using and one that she very deliberately takes off the ring and puts in her bag. And yeah. that to me, it more than anything else signals that we're going to get some sort of like physical altercation in the next week's episode. And it's going to be important that Holly, uh, has that second key that he doesn't know about. Um, yeah. So she can get to her car. And I think what's interesting about this whole thing with the rental car and the second key and then the, oh, I'm going to turn back. I forgot something. You know, Holly knows that she's potentially going into a very dangerous situation and yet she does it anyway. And then maybe gets freaked out to the point of like, oh, I can't do this anymore. Or maybe she says, I'm going to turn around just to test him. And I think that part of that, what, what that whole thing kind of feels like is her being like, I know this is dangerous, but I kind of have to know. And this might be the only way to know. I like I think she registered one level of um I don't trust this guy, I want to drive my own car. I mean she also has her own like control issues I don't know about issues, control preferences throughout the series when it comes to transportation, right? So like right. you know, that's consistent with her character. She has reason to maybe not trust Jack given like, you know, how she thinks something is like eating his heart out or whatever. Um and then when he shows up with his face looking the way he does, and then she sees the rash on the back of his neck, that's when she's like, I want to turn around. She sees the rash on the back of his neck, and she has already seen the rash on the back of Tracy Powell's neck and already decided that Tracy Powell is some sort of, like, perhaps thrall of some kind. Like, Holly figured it all out, it seems mm-hmm. to me. Um, that's the moment when she's like, I want to go back. Bye. Trying, yeah. trying to trying to be real smooth about it, and he's like, eh, "Best if we keep going." Uh, with some great overhead shots yeah. uh, in this episode, including yeah. that one, like the car just looking so small as it sort of heads off on its destination. I um, sometimes bemoan what drones have done to filmmaking, but in that instance, that was a good overhead shot. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, unless I got a helicopter, I don't know. No, no, no. You're probably right. Um, all right. So yeah, and I like I do like that Jack tries to cover it with just like you should have seen the other guy. Uh, I think that's, I think we did it. I think we did everything. Um, yeah, we see like one of the, the Maitland girls. I want to keep an eye out on, you know, like the older one was like folding up the, her dad's clothes after her mom, like dumped all of his belongings in the hallway. That's something, uh, to keep an eye out on, keep an eye on Claude, what he's going to do next. I think it is a good question. Um, 
why this uh, entity, this evil entity that has survived so long by hopping around from location to location, why would it choose to pick two victims in the same town, you know? Uh, Terry and then Claude. Like, that seems sloppy. So, um, we'll see. Um... And I don't, I think that's, I, I guess the last line that I want to call out that I really, really liked was, um, Holly says to Ralph, I'm so, I'm sorry. I'm such a disappointment to you in particular. And I just really like, uh, like, once again, it goes to, it goes to the fact that like Holly is able to read Jack like a book immediately. She's also read Ralph and she really likes and respects Ralph, despite the fact that he doesn't believe her. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, from what we've seen, that's a good judgment call on her behalf. Like Ralph is, uh, a character, a steady character that we really like as well. And so I just, I, I like that there's so much conflict between them in this episode, but there's still on her end, this, uh, desire to like please and help him. Um, and for him to respect her as much as she respects him. And, um, and then there is on his behalf, you know, that, that a fundamental kindness that is maybe just expressing itself as, as basic politeness, letting her stay or whatever. But, um, you know, that there is this goodness in him and it is, that is, that is a very, you know, I mentioned this already, but that is a very King thing too, where he likes, it's so interesting. He likes to boil things down to elemental good and elemental evil. That's something that he really likes to do. And what can be tricky about that is still trying to, by the interesting shades of gray, which I think is where Richard Price likes to exist in all of that. So I think giving Ralph this grief is, is, is part of that is part of the shading of this, of this character. Um, Yeah. And it allows for a a certain parental energy and a parental want to be expressed mm -hmm. and for Holly to have this, the same in return, you know, and there's a filial kind of thing there. And, um, I think, you know, like with this group that was all there for the presentation, it's like maybe what's happening is the slow coalescing of a new kind of chosen family, you know, like, I don't know how sentimental this is going to get at the end, but like you see these people in the midst of all this horror and all this sadness kind of reaching out for one another in ways, both big and small. And, you know, um, and I think that that's again, adding a crucial little bit of warmth to a show that is uh, in dire need of it. Yeah, I, I really, I really like that. And, you know, for Holly, who seems like such an isolated figure in many ways, there's like the, the idea of Andy, but then there's this, also this idea of, of this, you know, Jeannie Ralph family unit. And then like the fact that the Jeannie Ralph family unit was so close to being fractured so recently and is still such a core bond. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, I go back to that like silent shot of them in bed and just sort of like that, that, the strength that they draw from each other in that. And then the strength they are then able to provide to other people like Ralph and Jeannie trying to like support glory when, when she is in like a space to receive that support from them. Um, you know, I, it's, it's, it's really compelling. I find the show incredibly compelling. I'm really glad you picked it, Richard, uh, for us to cover on still watching. Um, until next week, episode seven, uh, where can folks find you, Richard Lawson? Well, I'm going to go up to the Catskills and I'm going to see if there are any of those old sort of dirty dancing era lodges there or, you know, kind of resorts. Cause I want to hear more Yiddish vampire jokes. Excellent. 
Uh, yeah. lo- love a, yeah, maybe Mrs. Maisel has a few Yiddish vampire jokes as well. And, uh, uh I will also be tweeting for Brylaws and writing at BF.com. It is Oscar weekend. Joanna and I are both descending on LA. Uh, but before you get here, so read all that stuff on BF.com. Before you get here, Joanna, what will you be doing? Oh, um, well, I'll just be getting ready for, you know, Daddy Oscar's weekend. Um, and. Oh my God, I forgot to book my daddy. Oh, oh shit. Okay. It's a uh, good thing we're wrapping up because I think I still have time. I think you can get a last minute daddy in LA. Okay. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, you can find me at Joe wrote this. Uh, you can find me at vanityfair.com. Uh, yeah, Richard and I will be in Oscar land, uh, until next week, but we will see you when we return to Georgia and the boogeyman. <laughs> Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.